Welcome to the Abundant Life Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Russ Cordell. For more information about Abundant Life Church, please visit www.abundantlifechurch.org. I know that there are people that are dealing with unrest inside, perhaps at night, you lay awake and you're wondering what's happening in the world with this COVID-19, what's going on with the violence and the things that are begin, the unrest that's beginning to come about, what's going to happen to our jobs, what's going to happen to our economy. But folks, I want to encourage you today that whatever's going to happen, you participate as best you possibly can. You stay in the game as best you possibly can. Do what you can to participate. Do your job the best that you can. But I'm telling you, there's a God that you can go to. I'm telling you that there's a place that you can rise above this, that you can live in faith knowing that God is going to carry us through. He's going to fight our battles. And it ties into exactly what I've been working on with you this last couple of weeks. I presented to you last week, what's in your chapter? I was talking about the book of Acts, probably the most generally most neglected piece of literature in all of Scripture. And many times I've encountered so many people hadn't even heard of the book of Acts, hadn't even heard uh, that it existed, had never been preached out of to them. But I'm talking about that most powerful piece of literature, that most incredible, explosive litany of amazing events and miracles and, and powerful establishment of the Christian church that occurred right after the four Gospels in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell the story. They're the biography of Jesus Christ, the biography of our Savior's arrival, His ministry to this world, and His reaching out to seek and to save that which is lost. But subsequently, after His ascension, after He had given His message to His disciples, and He ascended to heaven, subsequently exploded on the world in the form of the the Holy Ghost in the New Testament in the book of Acts. And so last time I was with you, I talked about the book of Acts. It's the only book of the Bible that continues to be written today. It's the Bible, it's the part of the Bible where every church was being established, every new soul was being saved. Folks, I'm telling you, that process has never stopped. It's never stopped. Churches continued on in through those early days, on into the dark ages, on into history through the Renaissance period, through all those famous pieces of history that you've heard about. When, when the Napoleonic Wars were going on, churches were being established and souls were being saved. When World War II was going on, churches were being established and souls were being saved. I don't care what part of history you looked at, whether it was the great expansion, the discovery of America, churches were being being established and souls were being saved. The book of Acts has never, ever ceased to be written. The question I challenge you with today, the question I challenged you with last week is what's in your chapter? What part in it do you have? What are you writing in your chapter? I ended last time at chapter 9. I want to dive right into, or excuse me, chapter 8. I want to dive right into chapter 9 this morning. Those in the house this morning can be remain seated. The first eight chapters of the book of Acts, powerful message from Acts 1, the ascension of Jesus, Acts 2, the explosive arrival of the Holy Ghost on the disciples in the temple in Jerusalem, all those thousands that saw this amazing, miraculous event, all those people speaking in tongues, worshiping God, speaking languages they didn't know, they weren't supposed to know, they didn't have any earthly business knowing, but God was working with them directly. Someone asked me in that subsequent uh, message, I received a message why did God choose that? Why? What is this whole deal about the tongues thing? I 
don't get it. And I want to tell you that there's a message coming up in this series that I'm doing. I'm going to dive so deeply into tongues. I'm going to explain that process. I'm going to get right into the heart of it. It's something we have a hard time talking about sometimes. Maybe it's not easy to describe to who we, who we work with and who we minister to and what this whole process is. It's something that, that we, we cha- we're challenged with because the world's told us it's not right. It's different. It was from the days of old. It, you're just making that up. It's some kind of crazy uh, uh, cultish thing that you do. But I'm telling you today that God chose this method. He said in the book of James that for the tongue can no man tame. What he was saying was it was the thing that could light a, a world on fire. You can kill people with the power of your tongue. And so God recognized that inside you, the most unruly, the most untamable thing about the human being, the one thing he, he challenged most to subdue was our tongues. And he knows that if he could get our tongue under submission, that he could get a hold of our hearts and let the spirit inside us speak through that, that he knew he had all of us. He had us all contained. And there's another factor to it, folks, because when it's a language we can't understand, when it's a heavenly language that God puts in our hearts and we allow to come out in the form of tongues, we can't defile it with our thoughts. We can't get behind it and make it something that it's not. We can't change the words. We can't forethink it, get ahead of it, and do all the things that we human beings like to do in our communication process. In other words, that language, that connection between our spirits and God is pure. It's absolutely pure. If the tongue is capable of destruction and and, and fire and, and, and harm, God certainly would want to bring that under submission if he's going to transform you into one of his to make you a Christian, a spokesman for him. And that's precisely what he did in that first day of the church in Acts chapter 2, is he transformed those Jews into something new. He made them new creatures. He filled them with his spirit. They spoke out. Those, the Bible says that those other people could hear him, hear them speaking wonderful praises and glorifying God in their languages. Now they were prepared to be soldiers for God, to be prepared to to be witnesses for him and to go into the world and preach the gospel, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter uh, 28, excuse me, uh, before he ascended, directing the great commission to go into the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We know that's Jesus Christ. In chapter 9, I'm going to head now into this next part. In chapter 9, we see the arrival of the Apostle Paul. Uh, he arrives on the scene. The instruction for living as a Christian in the New Testament is primarily written by the Apostle Paul. And I want to clear something up very quickly. Before he's known more in Scripture as Paul, he's known as Saul. He actually has two names. He has a Latin name and he has a Roman name. His name always was Paul and it always was Saul. But as he changed, as he transformed, as God did something to him, we're going to talk about here momentarily, God turned him into something new. They turned away from that old name, that old reputation that he had. He was a murderer of Christians. He was a persecutor. In in chapter 9, it says that at this point, Saul, the man who was persecuting and slaughtering Christians, was still breathing out threats and slaughter against a disciple of Jesus. He went to the high priest for his marching orders and the the high priest was going to send him to Damascus to find followers of Jesus and take them into custody and imprison them. More of what he was doing. He's on the road to Damascus. Many of you have heard this story. You're quite familiar with it. A great light shines out of heaven and knocks him off of his horse. Paul hears, excuse me, Saul at this time hears a voice from heaven. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? 
When Jesus, again, repeats a name like that, there's such tremendous emotional power when he says that name twice. It's like when he said in Scripture, verily, verily I say unto you. He was putting in tremendous emotion into that message. He said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Paul answers him, who art thou, Lord? That word Lord in Scripture right there is kyrios in the Greek, literally translated Lord God. Everywhere in Scripture where you see the phrase Lord God, it's translated in the Greek from kyrios, K-Y-R-I-O-S, kyrios, Lord God, capital L, capital G. In Scripture, Paul heard the voice of God speak to him. And then it says, and the Lord, kyrios, said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest, it is hard for you to kick against the pricks or the goad. That's, the, that's that stick that they would hit the ox with to make them go. In other words, it's, it's you're fighting against your true calling, Paul. What are you doing? Why are you not doing what's right by me? Don't be a stubborn ox. Paul actually recounts that story in Acts chapter 22 and again in Acts chapter 26. It was such a powerful moment in his life. So in verse 6, Paul immediately asks the most powerful question again. You've heard me say this before. It's been asked before. Men and brethren, what shall we do? What do you do? He asks God, what would you have me to do? How many Christians honestly ask God that question? We're concerned about what others are doing, what the pastors are doing, what leaders are doing, uh, about this and about that. But how many of us ask that question like Paul did? Is it going to take God knocking you off your horse, blinding you on the ground before you finally look up and say, God, what do you want me to do? What's my role? That's what this book of Acts is all about. That's what this movement is all about. That's why it's so critically important in the world today. The church is going to move through this situation. The church is going to strive and thrive, and it's going to win. And we've got to get as many people on board as we can. What's your purpose? What is it? If you ask God, God, what would you have me to do is the answer that you're going to get. We can't be spectators anymore. Folks, I believed and I am convinced and I've heard enough preachers and teachers. I've been listening now for weeks and talking to pastors and ministers. I've listened to messages. I'm telling you, folks, we have to understand that what has happened in our world today is a significantly powerful event that is changing the face of the culture of the church and who we are. We are the people of God. We are the people of the mission to reach out into this lost and dying world and take them the gospel of Jesus. Jesus Christ. We cannot sit on our laurels any longer. It's not our job to sit back and wonder who's going to do what next. What are they going to do about this? And and, and fret and worry and wonder what's going to happen. The church has to get up on its feet and start moving through this land. Worrying about politics and who's getting elected next? No, absolutely not. Spreading the gospel, seeking to save that which is lost. That's the mission at hand. This book, this powerful book of the book of Acts is a book that's about the mission that Jesus gave us over 2,000 years ago. It has not changed. It has not stopped being written. However, I do wonder if the chapters have slowed down. If the development of the book has slowed, if we've gotten to a place, we're too rich, we're too wealthy, we're too healthy, we're too well, but all of a sudden a little bug floats into the air and scares an entire world and locks it down. Things are happening in our world today that are unsettling to people. It's scary. Perhaps freedoms are are being altered. Perhaps there's things that are being perceived. I don't know. I'm not diving into all of that stuff. I don't care because I'm part of the church. I'm part of the movement. I'm reaching out to people. I'm ministering the gospel right now, every day. That's the mission at hand. 
But I'm telling you, it's the job of the church to lead the way. I believe that, and I, and I am convicted that it's time for us to get a hold of this thing. I'm taking us on this tour of the book of Acts, one, because I believe it's critically important that we begin to expose this thing. We get this word out to people who've never heard it, don't understand it, don't understand what the apostolic movement is, why it's important that the ministry of the apostles is carried out for 2,000 consecutive years and continues on into the future. I'm telling you today, because it was the same message yesterday, today, and forever, that mission never stopped. It was never meant to slow down or morph. We weren't meant to turn into clubs and social groups. We weren't meant to hide away in the church and be comfortable and just sit back and eat these wonderful meals of of ministry of the word. We were meant to use this as a camp. It was meant to be a place where we shored up our knowledge, where we got our wounds healed, where we gathered together for a little bit of fellowship. But it was the camp of the beginning of the mission to go into the field. We were meant to be a missionary church. And we're going to get back to being a missionary church. It's happening all over the world right now. Apostolic churches of all kinds, of all denominations, rising up, reaching out, getting their plans set, getting into a gear now where they're moving into a place they've never been before, getting serious about this thing. They're recognizing that it's no longer time to be the social club. It's no longer time just to hide here in the walls. You see, the enemy, the enemy wants us to do that. He was happy with us that way. Y'all just go on to church now. You just tuck there in your little church and and, and hide away and and, and you do your thing and then we'll be comfortable out here. It's time that we come out. It's not our job to make them comfortable. It's our job to make them aware. It's time that we come outside the clubhouse, get outside these walls, get on the mission of the job. That's where the enemy wants us in here and it's time that we make the move. This COVID-19 thing is transforming Our thought process is transforming. It's waking us up. It's bringing us to a place of understanding that we realize that we were asleep. And look how quickly, just like that, in a snap of a finger, governments rised up, shut everything down for the, for, the, for the sake of safety. Yes, it needed to be done. There are things that needed to happen to protect people. I'm not coming against that. I'm not making any political statements against that. But what I'm saying is you can feel it. If you ask yourself that question right now, you can feel it. You can feel that there's an infringement, that there's a move that's happening from, from the things that needed to happen that were safe and were protecting people to all of a sudden now it just feels a little bit like something's not right here. Something is just a little bit too much. Why does it feel like there's a battle, there's a fight now going on between the ones that say this and the ones that say that? It's because there's a battle for freedoms that are happening. This crisis, as one man said, I believe it was Rahm Emanuel, the former Chicago mayor, who said you can never let a good crisis go to waste. Opportunists for control and power could be at hand. I'm not saying they are. I'm not making any declarations. I'm not casting ballots out here today. But what I'm telling you is, is we got to get up and rise up above all of that in whatever way that we can. We got to get back to the mission. Paul asked that powerful question, what would you have me to do? And, And God sends him to Damascus to wait. He's blind for three days. He doesn't eat, doesn't drink. He just prays. He's already transformed. God sends a disciple named Ananias to minister to Saul, and he prays and he receives his sight. Ananias knows that Paul is a terrible person. He's got a bad reputation. He objected the whole thing. He didn't want to do it. 
I'm telling you today, God is going to ask you to do things. He's going to put things on your heart you're not going to be comfortable with. You think it's easy to stand up here and preach to a camera and six people in a room and talk about something that people find strange and odd and get into the book of the Bible that talks about tongues and speaking in a foreign language that nobody knows? That's not an easy thing to do. But I'm telling you this morning, God Almighty has put it on my heart to begin to expose this book, to expose this information. It's the same Bible every Christian church in America is carrying in their hands right now. That book of Acts exists in every single King James Bible that's ever been printed, but it never gets exposed. Why? Because the enemy has sequestered that information away from church leadership as a way to sequester his spirit. It's not an easy thing to do, but I'm answering the call of the Lord today. I've got a mission, and my mission is to expose the book of Acts, to get people so well-versed in it, they're ready to go out and share it and share it with other people that they know. Preach it if they have to. Verse 15, he says, go, for he is chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. This is God speaking to Ananias. Verse 17, Paul is healed. He's filled with the Holy Ghost. Says, brother Saul, the Lord, Kyrios, again, even Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean also Jesus or and Jesus. It says, the Lord, even Jesus, meaning the Lord Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, hath sent me, that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. Paul was filled with the Holy Ghost. Every one of those disciples in the, in the upper room, the 120 worshiping, were filled with the Holy Ghost. Those 3,000 that were saved on that first day were filled with the Holy Ghost. That additional 5,000 that was saved in the sh- a short while after were filled with the Holy Ghost. How do we know that? They were speaking in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. There was that pure and perfect angelic language that God inspired in their heart and they subdued themselves, surrendered even their tongue, the most untamable part, and spoke out that beautiful language as evidence of receiving God's Spirit in their heart. It happened again and again and again and again throughout the book of Acts. Acts chapter 9 and 18 says, And immediately there fell from his eyes that had been scales, and he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. Paul, the greatest writer of the New Testament, one of the most powerful Christians ever to exist, conversing directly back and forth with Jesus Christ, was baptized in Jesus' name and filled with the Holy Ghost. Even Paul. He immediately began preaching Jesus, just as passionate and vigorous and purposed as he was when he was Saul and he was persecuting the Christians. He jumped right in. He changed gears. It was like the most 180 of 180s that had ever happened in history. Immediately begins preaching Jesus. People are suspect, but they listen. The Jewish leaders want to kill him. Uh, They get after him. They get after him in, uh, in Damascus, so much so that the disciples have to hide him in a basket and lower him down a wall so he can escape out of the city. I think of another great leader that was saved by a basket. I wonder if there's a type and shadow there. When Moses' mother bound together a a basket of reeds and pitch and floated it down the river. Isn't it amazing how these things come back? The apostle Barnabas takes him to the disciples. They don't believe it at first. Saw that Saul's now a disciple. It's a tough thing. They didn't accept it right away. In verse 31, it said, Then had the churches rest 
throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord. And listen to what it says, and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. The churches throughout all of Judea, that's the land of the Jews, the pure Jews. Galilee, where the the apostles were from. Samaria, where there were Gentiles and Jews mixed. They were all, all of those churches walking in the comfort of the Holy Ghost. All of them had the Holy Ghost in this experience. Chapter 9 ends in two miracles, and in in just a short while down the road here, I'm going to talk to you about the miracles of Acts. Uh, It's a very, very significant point, but throughout the book of Acts, chapter by chapter, as they were going out and ministering, God was using Paul and the other disciples in, in ways of miracles. I talked about Peter and John very early in the book of Acts, the man at the gate, beautiful, silver and gold have I none, but that which I have I give unto thee in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And the man was healed and stood up and and ran into the temple worshiping and praising. Two miracles at the end of nine. Peter heals uh, a man named Aeneas who was sick of the palsy. Peter raises a young lady named Tabitha from the dead. Pastor, that's old time stuff. That's, That's that old biblical miracle stuff. I'm here to tell you this morning. Again, we've got to stop that thinking. We've got to stop thinking that parts of the book of Acts are no longer valid. That the church is no longer valid in this area. I'm here to tell you that miracles can happen again today. If the miracle of a person being delivered from cigarettes or alcohol or being filled with the Holy Ghost after living a terrible life. I've had a lot of, I've seen a lot of people come into the church. Criminals doing terrible things. They've confessed to me. I've lived a horrible life, but I've watched God put them to their knees at that altar as they wept and prayed and asked forgiveness and watched God fill them with the Holy Ghost. I've watched it happen. Men that I know that did prison time, that did horrible things, stole and and hurt people, and God filled them with the Holy Ghost. If that miracle can happen right now, and it does, then these miracles can happen, and I'm here to say that they must happen. The book of Acts must continue to be written as it was written 2,000 years ago if it's going to be continued to be written at all. In chapter 10, God opens up the message to the Gentiles for the first time. You have to understand in the, in the tradition of the disciples, in the tradition of these, these Jews, that, that, that Gentiles were, were trash, they were, they were dirty, they were, they were unclean, they were, you weren't supposed to talk to them or deal with them. But God, from the very beginning, had revealed his plan throughout the Old Testament and the prophets, and then when Jesus arrived, it was very clear that this message was available too for the Gentiles. It was for everybody. Jesus came to save that which was lost. We come across a man named Cornelius. He's a Roman centurion. He's a Gentile. He's of the Italian band, the Bible says. He's devout. He fears God. He prays and he gives alms. And God speaks to him and says, your alms have come up to me as a a memorial. God recognizes this man. Somehow, uh, this Gentile Roman centurion got the message. And he's praying. His household loves God and worships him. But he's ignorant. He doesn't have the whole story. Does that make Cornelius a bad guy? No. He's he's a faithful man. Someone in the world might say that he's a religious person. uh, but, But he doesn't have the whole truth. He doesn't have everything. Everything that God wants him to have. It doesn't make him a bad guy. Folks, we encounter people like that every day. We can't be judgmental. We can't set ourselves up like we know something they don't. They're bad. They're ignorant. Whatever the case is. I've seen that happen in other places. I've gone in places where people have had that attitude. Like, we've got God in our back pocket here. The apostolic church is the only one going to heaven. Absolutely not. You can't approach it that way. Because there was a man named Cornelius who was faithful and he gave alms and he prayed and he loved God. There's lots of people of all kinds of denominations all over the world like that. 
God loves them too. And so God says, this man is wonderful. I, I, I'm, I'm going to send somebody to him. And I'm going to get him the whole truth. I'm going to give him this, Acts, this, this, this book of Acts experience. So God gives him a vision. An angel of the God appears to him and tells him to send for a man named Peter. Now Peter's praying some, uh, in the city of Joppa. He's on a rooftop and he's praying. God gives him this vision and says, you know, he shows him this sheet, this white clean sheet that rolls out from heaven and coming down from it are clean and unclean animals. God says, take up, rise and eat because he knew Peter was hungry. Before he went into this, this sort of sleep, this trance-like state the Bible says, he was hungry. He says, rise and eat. Peter says, not so. I can't, I've never touched anything unclean God I can't do that anything that's common or unclean that's how they referred to the Gentiles but the voice of God says what God has cleansed that call thou not common what God has cleansed that's an illusion A-L-U allusion to baptism I made it clean I'm God I make the rules don't call what's, unco- what's common, common if I say it's not. So he's teaching Peter a lesson that this message is now for everybody. Shocking to Peter. Never did this before. He followed the law. In verse 25, and as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter took him up saying, look, I, I'm a man myself. And as he talked with him, he went in and found that there were many together. I'm reading in verse now 28. And he said unto them, You know how that it is an unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company or come unto one of another nation. But God has showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Folks, never turn away from anyone. Never decide in your heart or in your mind that person won't receive my message. They won't listen to my testimony. Never look at somebody and say they're too, too uh, dirty. They're too from a different background. They're too far into their deal. Oh, I know what that guy does and, and he's too far gone. Never, ever make that judgment. Never decide that someone is common or unclean. If God's put it in your heart to open up and give that testimony, to speak to that person, put aside all biases, put aside all judgments. Don't, don't declare anybody lost or gone. That's not your judgment to make. Because he spoke to Peter and he said, don't you call this man unclean, because I've cleansed him. Therefore, verse 29, came I unto you without gainsaying. As soon as I was sent for, I asked therefore what intent ye have sent for me. So Cornelius tells him the story of the vision. Uh, after Cornelius, uh, uh, that, that story, Peter begins to minister. In verse 34, then Peter opened his mouth and said, of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. You know what that means? That simply means that whatever status you are, how much money you have, whatever place in the country you're from, where you live, how well you live, what you do for a living does not matter to God. None of it matters. He doesn't set anybody up higher than another. I'm not higher than anyone because my title is pastor. I'm not lower than somebody else because they have more money than I do. God is not a respecter of persons. This message is for every soul on planet Earth. Peter then begins to preach the story of Jesus' ministry and, and the call uh, given to he and the disciples. He, he recounts the whole thing there in, in 35 and on. In verse 44, it says this. This is wonderful. Now focus on verse 44. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. This is an amazing event because Peter's simply just ministering the gospel of Jesus. 
And as they're listening, they were so faithful. They were so ready to receive God's word. They were so ready to receive Jesus that just hearing the word, the Holy Ghost fell on them. What was the word that Peter was preaching? The same word he preached in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. He was telling them that same story, that same message. You can share that message. You can share that Acts chapter 2 message and let God do the work. Let God do what he's going to do because right there, all Peter did was showed up and shared the word and the Holy Ghost fell. Look at Acts chapter 10, 45. It says, and they of the circumcision, that's the Jews, which believed were astonished as many as came with Peter. All of them that came with Peter just were blown away by this thing because that on the Gentiles was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. How do they know this? How do they know that they got the Holy Ghost just standing there listening to Peter preach? Because verse 46 says, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then answered Peter, can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they prayed they him to tarry certain days. Just like in the book of Acts in chapter 2. There it is again. He preaches the message. The Holy Ghost falls. They don't stop at believing. They didn't say, oh, you've believed? Great, you're all good. I want to tell you that Cornelius was a believer before God sent somebody to him. You understand? There's that second step. There's that action that has to happen. There's got to be that full message that gets into the hearts of these people. And then there's that next beautiful event, and that's the infilling of the Holy Ghost. And that next beautiful event, notice it doesn't say Peter suggested it to him. Peter said, hey, do you guys want to think about getting baptized? Or hey, would that be an idea that you like? No. The Bible says he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Powerful again and again throughout the book of Acts. That's why I'm taking you through it. That's why we're taking this journey. I'm going to expose every aspect of this. I'm going to pound it in so that it becomes so enriched and ingrained inside of us we can preach it out to whoever it comes to. God, plant this seed right now in the minds of the people that are listening to this word. Bring it to the remembrance every opportunity that they have. In Jesus' name. In chapter 11, the Jews and the Gentiles are united in faith. Peter goes back to Jerusalem. The disciples are now, they're unsettled because, uh, because he'd gone to the Gentiles. They didn't like it. What's going on? This is a complete, uh, 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 utter difference of everything they've been taught from, from birth. The Bible even says in verse 4 that Peter rehearsed the matter because he knew they'd be pretty, pretty, you know, they'd be pretty freaked out. He rehearsed the matter, what he was going to say, because it was so powerful. But he tells the story of being called to preach to Cornelius. Look at 11 and 15. Peter's recounting the story. He said, and as I began to speak, the Holy Ghost fell on them as on us at the beginning. What beginning? Acts chapter 2. He's saying, just like what happened to us a a, a while back here, it happened to them. Verse 16, then remembered I the word of the Lord. How that he said, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost for as much then as God gave them the like gift as he did unto us who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, they they believed. Again, I want to reemphasize this idea. There is cheap grace messages that are being put out into this world that all you have to do is show up and believe and everything's okay. 
I'm sorry. Believing is important. God bless you for believing. I'm so glad that you acknowledge that there's a Lord and Savior in your life, that God exists, that the word of God is true. But you can see again when it said, who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as we did, like unto us. What was I that I could withstand God, Peter says. I'm telling you folks again and again and again throughout these messages. You're going to hear it. You've heard it before. You're going to hear it again. Where they believed, they received. Where they believed, they received. They were baptized in the name of the Lord. All throughout the establishment of the Christian churches in the book of Acts, the history of the Christian church did not ever stop at believing. Verse 18, they accept the message Uh, that it's for the Gentiles too. They celebrate. Hey, all right. Barnabas, the the disciple, goes to Saul from Tarsus. Disciples gather the minister at at Antioch for about a year. Now this is where things shift. Now Jerusalem's no longer going to be the center. Now the the center of all the disciples' ministries is going to be in Antioch in Greece. Verse 26, and it says this, and the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So there it is. 11 and 26, the first time they're referred to as Christians. There it is. They recognize it. This new movement, this new church. And it's first recognized in Antioch. In chapter 12, we cannot be permanently kept in our prisons is the message in this chapter. And I, I, want to talk, I wanted to talk about this specifically, very, just very briefly. I'm not going to read all this and, and go into every single chapter as I want to get through. But up to chapter church, excuse me, up to chapter 12, the church was on a roll, successful. They were, they were establishing new churches. People were being saved. All these great things were happening. The church was moving. It was growing. Churches have these types of histories. They have this. You establish a church and it's, it's rah, 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 and everybody's excited and they're sharing with their friends and the church grows up and it hits a plateau first thing that happens people get complacent they get a little tired someone else maybe want to pick up the work now we've done our part but satan the enemy attacks comes in james the brother of john becomes the second martyr following stephen peter's thrown into prison again the angel of the lord takes him out again another miracle happening in in scripture At this point, Herod Agrippa, by the way, just so you understand, as you go through the book of Acts, you're going to hear about Herods. There were a total of five Herods. This was Herod Agrippa, uh, the first. He finds out that Peter is gone out of the prison, and he executes the prison keepers. But the angel of the Lord kills Herod for setting himself up like a god to the people. All I can say about that is, politicians, you better watch out. Politicians of this world, world leaders, presidents, senators, congress people, whatever ruling power that you're in, you be careful setting yourself up as a God to the people. The answer to everything for the people is not through government, is not through politics. I'll even go so far as to say this if politics is your God, you're serving the wrong God. In chapter 13, we find out that we really truly have the power to fight the enemy. Paul's first missionary journey with Barnabas, uh, uh, the two most significant missionaries to the whole world are Paul and Barnabas. Uh, A Roman proconsul named uh, Sergius Paulus uh, on an island named Paphos had called for Saul and Barnabas. He wanted to hear the word. Again, it was getting out. This is a a Roman consul, proconsul, excuse me, but there was a a sorcerer there named Bargesus, uh, means son of Jesus, which is a mockery, uh, was with him. The sorcerer tried to turn the followers away from the truth. They wouldn't listen to Paul and and, and so that they wouldn't convert believers 
believers. We're going to come against that, folks. There's going to be people in your lives. There's going to be that person in your job who knows that you're a Christian, knows that you're sharing your faith, but he doesn't like that. They don't want you doing that. That makes them uncomfortable. They're going to get in your way. There's going to be that person in your neighborhood, maybe somebody in your own family. You're going to run into somebody like that that just doesn't like it, doesn't want you sharing that message. You got to be prepared. This is an example of that. This guy was in Paul's face. He calls the sorcerer a child of the devil and pronounces him blind for what he's doing. Another miracle that Paul portrays. The proconsul believes what Paul is teaching and, and what he'd seen, and he's astonished at the word, the Bible says. Paul goes on to preach in the synagogue at Antioch of Pisidian. For the second time in the book of Acts, the Old Testament history of the Jews and their failure to stay faithful to God is preached as a precursor for the ministry of Jesus. You can find that in verse 16 through 22. Then Paul preaches the message and the purpose of Jesus' life and death to them in 23 through 37. But I just wanted to focus on these two points in this chapter. In 38... It says, be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things, from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. So he's preaching to them and he's talking to them about this redemptive redemptive power of Jesus that can't be taken by Moses' law. The law was not destroyed, but it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He warns the Jews not to reject the word, uh, but they do it anyway. The Gentiles practically beg to hear the word and receive it. So the Jews are now in the rejection process. This condition, in a large way, exists in our world today. The Jews, the Israeli Jews, for example, many still refuse to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. That rejection started right here. You're reading it. But the Gentiles, they're practically begging, Paul, tell us the word. We want to know. We're hungry. What's the point? Sometimes we got to stop trying to save the Jews, and we got to turn to the Gentiles. we got to stop trying to save the ones that won't hear anymore, the ones that we've tried to get the word to, the ones we've shared our testimony with for years. We've cried and we've wept over them. You should know this. You should understand this. You've seen the, the Christian life. You've seen the way I live. You've seen the things that God's done in my life, and yet reject and reject and reject. But sometimes I think we put so much emphasis on that one opportunity We neglect the opportunities surrounding us. Acts 13 and 49 says, And the word of the Lord was published throughout all the region. The Jews were stirred up, the honorable, excuse me, the Jews stirred up the honorable women and the chief men of the city and raised up persecution against them. So they dusted their feet off and they moved on. Sometimes we have to do that, folks. There's just a place where some people aren't going to receive that person you so desperately want to reach. You want them so badly. Don't stop praying for them. Don't stop being kind. Don't stop loving them. But you have ministry power. You have the ability to share that testimony with more. There's more that you can do on your mission. In chapter 14, they have missionary success again. They go to a place called Iconium. Paul heals a crippled man from birth. Another miracle of Paul in the book of Acts. The word is accepted by the Jews and the Greeks. People begin to think that they're gods. The disciples are gods. They try to worship them and, and do sacrifices to them. But Paul sets them straight. Paul's taken out of the city and he's stoned. Paul's actually stoned at this point, but he doesn't die. They think he's dead. I just thought to myself as I was reading and studying that part, I thought, you know, sometimes we endure the sticks and the stones of being Christians, of standing up for what we do, whether they're verbal or, or otherwise, typically verbal. 
But God gives us the grace to keep going. Paul was able to get up from that mess. I don't know what it's like to be stoned, but I can't imagine it's a, a, a very easy to recover from. At this point now, every elders are appointed in every church throughout the New Testament. They're being established. In chapter 15, the Pharisees at Jerusalem try pushing Moses' old law back on the disciples, trying to stay, snuff out Jesus' message. They want to stay uh, in the old ways. They don't want to be pushed out of the rut that they're in. They don't want to be told this new story. They don't want to lose power uh, because that would mean that there's new things that, 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 that are, are much broader than the spectrum that they have. For the third time, it's shown in the Old Testament history, and law points to salvation being offered to the Jews and the Gentiles alike under Jesus' message. Chapter 16, Paul and Timothy, they're in prison. There's prison again. In verse 4 and 5, more churches are established. Paul establishes the church at Philippi. Lydia, the first, the first convert in Europe, she and her household were baptized, it says in verse 15. Paul casts a spirit of divination out of a damsel. She's a soothsayer, another miracle per, uh, portrayed by Paul. She made money for her masters, and, and, and so by casting this thing out of her, uh, they, they affected their money, and so these guys threw them in prison. What are they doing while they're in prison? Praying and singing praises. Folks, we get ourselves into our prisons all the time. We live in one prison to the next. We get into depression. We make mistakes. Choices that we make put us in little prisons in our mind. But I'm telling you today, our position as powerful Christians, full of the Holy Ghost, full of the Word of God, is not to wallow in our self-pity. It's not to focus on the negative, to sit and pine away. Our focus is to pray and sing the praises of God and let Him get us out of the prison. There was a great earthquake, it says in verse 26, the foundations of the prison were shaken. What does the foundation of your prison look like? What was the foundation you laid, the mistake maybe you made, or the happenstance that happened, something out of your control? What does that foundation look like? I'm telling you today, there's no foundation of any prison that you've established for yourself that God himself cannot shake the very mountains and break it open for you. The prison keeper comes and sees that the doors are open. He goes to kill himself. Paul stops and says, do thyself no harm. Paul asked the great question again, what we've heard so many times before. Excuse me. The, the prison keeper asked the question, sirs, what must I do to be saved? In Acts chapter 16 and 31, it says, and they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. Stop. That's it. That's the end of the story. That's the whole program. That's all God wanted us to do. That's the entire deal. We can go on our way, correct? No. And, verse 32, they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes, and they were baptized all of his straight away. Again, I'm, I'm going to keep hitting it hard. I'm going to sound ridiculous by the end of this series. But I want to get this thing across again and again. Yes, multiple times throughout Scripture. It said, believe on the Lord and you'll be saved. Believe and you're saved. Believe and you'll have God. Believe and you'll be okay. Believe, believe. But every single time, every place that this was established, it was followed by a baptism, by infilling of the Holy Ghost. I'm wrapping up now so uh, we can uh, get ready to close. Chapter 17, Paul and Silas established a church at Thessalonica. You ever get to studying Thessalonica? Powerful, uh, uh, forecasted, 
prophecy information in First and Second Thessalonians. Uh, in verse 6, the Jewish opposition accused them of turning the world upside down with their doctrine. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. I want to get to a place where we're literally turning our world upside down with this doctrine. Think about your world, the world that you live in, the area, the, the, the influence that you have. Have you gotten to a place where you're literally turning it upside down with the doctrine of Jesus Christ? I want to get to that place for me personally. Verse 22, Paul's famous sermon at Mars Hill. He preaches Judgment Day uh, by Jesus. In chapter 18, Paul is establishing the church at Corinth. He meets with the two believers, Aquila and Priscilla. He preaches in the synagogue, persuades the Jews and the Greeks again. Acts chapter 18 and 7. And he departed thence and entered into a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshipped God, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. In verse 8, and Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, a chief priest, believed on the Lord with all his house. Here we are again. He believed on the Lord with all his house. And many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were what? They were baptized. The church was established at Corinth. Verse 19, it says the seeds for the church at Ephesus are planted. Aquila and Priscilla are there. In verse 23, the church at Galatia and Phrygia are established. Finally, in Acts chapter 19, and this is where I'm ending today, I want to end with this scripture, Acts chapter 19, if you'll turn with me, starting right at verse 1. This is the establishment of the church at Ephesus, the book of Ephesians. You know that many Bible scholars believe that the church of today, the apostolic, powerful, Pentecostal church of today, the one establishing churches, continuing on the book of Acts message, the church today is very much like the book of Ephesus, the, the people of Ephesus, the church of Ephesus. There's so many similarities there. Look at 19 verse 1. It says, And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since you what? Since you believed. Why would Paul ask, ask that question? If all you had to do was believe why would the greatest apostle of the entire New Testament, the writer of nearly three quarters of all the, the scripture written to the churches of the time, why would he ask such a foolish question if all you had to do is believe? Why would he say, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? Here's another question. If receiving the Holy Ghost happens automatically when you step up to the altar and you tell Jesus that you believe, and many have told me that, well, I got the Holy Ghost because I accepted the Lord as my personal Savior. I believed and I got the Holy Ghost. Well, if that's the case, why would again Paul, the greatest disciple perhaps, why would Paul ask the question, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? That would make no sense. But it goes on to say, and they said unto him, we have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. Well, why would they have been taught to believe and not taught the Holy Ghost at the same time? And he said unto them, Unto what then were you baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance. Then said Paul, excuse me, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. Believe on him. And when they heard this, what did they do? They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. And all the men were about 12. There it is again, folks. 
They believed. They were believers. They had heard the message. They were, they were doing right. They were good people. They were, they were disciples. It, it, it says right there, they were disciples. So they were following God, what they knew, what they understood, they were following. But see, Paul was sent there for a reason. It wasn't an accident that he came upon these disciples and asked them that most powerful question, since you believed, have you received the Holy Ghost? Clearly, they hadn't been baptized yet. Just John's baptism. They repented. That was, a, that was a baptism of repenting of their sins. That's the first step, as it says in Acts chapter 2. Repent of your sins and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's a separate event. They're separate things. They were devout. They were disciples. They were followers. They loved God. They just didn't have all the pieces yet. The church was still being birthed. The message was still coming out. There's a lot of wonderful, wonderful, devout, faithful, terrific people that I personally love, enjoy, company that I love, friendships that I enjoy, that I know believe God, love God, and God loves them. But the church is being birthed still today. The book is still being written today. And therefore, there's still some steps for some people. There's still a couple things that, that need to be asked. Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? Uh, have you been baptized since you believed? It's not optional. It's not a club participation. It's not something you can do as a, as a notion. Peter commanded them to be baptized. Most of the rest of them didn't even have to be commanded. They just willfully knew that that was the next step from the preaching they were being given. I pulled this piece as I'm rapping today. I pulled this piece off of, off of Facebook the other day. I read it and it hit me profoundly. I'd heard it before. The great German pastor and theologian, martyr and spy, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, was asked this question in 1943. They asked him, how is it possible for the church to have sat back and let Hitler seize absolute power? Dietrich Bonhoeffer looked at him in his firm answer. It was the teaching of cheap grace, he said. 1943. He went on to say that cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. And grace without Jesus Christ. We live in a time and a culture that not only teaches cheap grace, but praises it. Let us go back to the Bible. God will not save anyone contrary to his written word. And I pray that our eyes and all of the eyes of the people that heard this word today heard the word that I shared, the word directly from Scripture, that our eyes are open and we recognize cheap grace is not the way to go. In Jesus' name, let's stand and worship the Lord today as we take our altar service. Thank you for staying with me for so long. So much to, to, to cover, so much that God wants to say, wants us to know. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this Abundant Life Church podcast. 
We pray it has strengthened your relationship with God and will continue to be a light unto your pathway to heaven. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please telephone our ministerial team at 262-965-5177 or email us at info at abundantlifechurch.org.